Welcome to Business Lines State of the Economy podcast where you will find insight analysis and the story behind the numbers. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Business Line podcast. Today we have with us Dr. Kirit Parekh. Dr. Parekh is a very known public policy influencer when it comes to Indian policies across last 5 decades. He has done seminal work on energy and climate change. public policy initiatives of the country in fact dr parekh has worked in various economic advisory councils under five indian prime ministers he has also been a member of the planning commission a phd from the famed massachusetts institute of technology dr parekh is the chairman of the integrated research and action for development which is an independent non-profit doing core research on climate and low carbon pathways in india Today we'll speak with Dr. Parekh about India's natural gas economy and what thrust and initiatives are required to further propel them so that the share of gas in India's total energy mix increases to 15% from the present 6%. Thank you Dr. Parekh for um, giving time to us My to pleasure. speak on uh, the yeah. climate change and gas. So the first question to you is um, uh, what what are your thoughts on the clean energy transition since this has become the go to word across the globe and in the light of clean energy transitions uh, particularly uh, what what are the uh, scopes strengths and weaknesses of our companies who are in the hydrocarbon business and in hydrocarbon business particularly the natural gas you see i think uh, we have set ourselves a target of net zero by 2070 but net zero by 2070 means no fossil fuel use that is no use of coal no use of oil no use of gas unless you are able to have carbon capture and storage or use after this so which is a technology which is not uh, yet fully developed uh, so one cannot fully rely on it but i think for india's case that would be a very vital technology because we are so dependent on coal coal is our only major resource and so many millions of people depend on coal and coal related industries so we have to worry about justice in terms of what happens to different parts of the community of the, of, of people now as far as uh, gas is concerned as you said you know we are currently it constitutes only about 6.5% or so of about energy basket out of which nearly 45 to 50% is imported so our domestic production constitutes only about less than 4% of our uh, energy basket now to have a goal to have it 15% by 2030 is a very very ambitious goal one has to then ask the question why is it that we are not actually able to produce more gas is it because we don't have enough uh, reserves which is promising and people are willing to come and in, invest in it or is it because the government policies are such that investors are reluctant to invest in a very risky business of exploration and production of gas this is the main theme that one has to address now i think uh, if you look at the pricing policy of the government of india today there are about 14 different kinds of prices that are being allotted one is the so called apm or allocated price mechanism gas so the field which were allotted to 
ONGC and OIL to public sector corporations without any bidding or anything or without any requirement. What is required? Then the government controls the allocation and the price of the gas that they make. That is the APM gas price, which constitutes really 70% of our gas production today. Then there are various fields, about 13, 14 different kinds of fields, where government has given it through bidding and different conditions apply, like profit sharing, cost sharing, revenue sharing, etc. And then there are some fields which were recently allocated after February 2019, where people are completely free to price, charge whatever price they want and to uh, sell to whom they are also. They have the total pricing and marketing freedom. Whereas all those various exploration licensing policy fields, they have pricing freedom within some limits. And so the government sets the periodically the upper limit within which they can sell price. So the main point was that the APM gas is currently allotted to uses which are primarily the uses that government wants to promote. And these are, for example, pipe natural gas to uh, households. That is because, you know, giving clean cooking energy is an important goal of the government. And clean cooking energy is, reduces indoor air pollution. And indoor air pollution can have very severe adverse impact on women's and children's health. Among the clean cooking fuels, we are providing LPG. But we are also importing substantial quantity of LPG. Government is now giving also subsidies to poor households on LPG. But now they're also trying to give PNG to as many households in urban areas as possible so that the cylinders, SPG and LPG can be freed and more people in the rural areas can be reached. The second consumer group that gets subsidized APM gas, subsidized in the sense that the cost is very little less, price is set by the government, is the CNG, the compressed natural gas using vehicles. And that again, the objective, social objective is that urban areas air pollution needs to be reduced and that is you know if the vehicles use cng that air quality improves in the urban area so these are the two important elements of the government part. government also gives the cng apm gas part of it to fertilizer producers farmers are given subsidized fertilizer and the fertilizer manufacturers are fully compensated for the gas. So now we had in our committee, we recommended three things. One is that the APM gas price should have been between a, uh, between a floor and a ceiling. And the floor is such that it at least covers the marginal cost of production of uh, ONGC and OIL because they were making a lot of losses. The second thing we set an upper price has to be such that PNG users, that the pipe natural gas using households should find it cheaper than LPG. So they will continue to use PNG. Similarly, it should also be cheaper than diesel, which is the subsidized, you know, competing fuel for transport sector. So we had set based on this an upper bound and so on. And upper bound is that for we had set it related to imported price of 
Indian basket of crude oil. Because you relate your gas price to that, then it automatically ensures that it's less than the alternative that are available, LPG and diesel. So the in-between fellows, we said within two years, they should all have total marketing freedom along with pricing, pricing and marketing freedom. They should be able to sell wherever they want. They should charge whatever price they want. And we hope that by 1st of January 2026, this can be fully market-driven. And some, we said it should be done by 1st January 2027. Essentially, uh, we will have a a market-determined price for gas latest by 1st January 2027. And why this is critical is that if you want to attract people to invest for exploration and production, they have to have that freedom of selling because it's a risky business and they say they can charge the price, they can charge this and so on, then it should, it should be all right. Why people are not coming, one of the understanding is that they see the government prices, policies are changing frequently. And so the risk of government policy risk is perceived to be very high. But now once you say that, look, this is a free market, you do this, you are all used to dealing with the risk of the free market, you will deal with it. And they can export it if they want, whatever they want to do can be done. So that is the basic framework of the reasons we have given for these things. Dr. Parik, the industry has really hailed your report. And uh, if it is accepted by the government, industry expects this will not just provide more freedom to uh, companies to devise their policies, but also infuse more competition in the sector. Uh, Do you agree with this, number one? And number two, what according to you, if your committee recommendations are expected, how do you expect it to impact the sector? Well, I expect the committee's recommendations would be accepted by the government because it is uh, we have taken care of, or at least we have tried to take care of concerns of all stakeholders and different ministries were there, different consumer groups were there. So I believe that it should be possible for the government to accept this recommendation. The government should really give an assurance, create a faith in, in its policies. It's not going to provide any retroactive things, it's not going to change the policy, it's going to stick to, there is a policy stability is very, very critical here. And that creates, you need to create a trust among investors that this is what the government will follow. Now, one issue that comes is that how does gas, 15% of it, when you are trying to cut down fossil fuel, why are you increasing gas consumption? That is an essential issue. We did not discuss, it was not a part of the terms of the reference of the committee, to see why are you having this 15% gas target. I think it is a good transition fuel. We need something to cook. If we have stable, round-the-clock, stable voltage, high volume, high value electricity supply, people like it is very common in Europe and America will cook with electric electricity. And so eventually cooking fuel would be electricity in my, you know, that's the cleanest thing we can do. But to make that clean from a climate change point of view, also that our electricity itself has to be net zero. That will take time. And also to improve our DISCOM's distribution network 
and make sure that they will supply electricity at a stable voltage that people can trust that I can use. When I switch on, the power is going to be there and I can hook with electricity. That will take also time. So I think in between, you can switch to a clean cooking fuel. Dr. Parekh, probably you are one of the few persons who can best answer this question. Uh, India is at a cusp where, you know, it has to care about the hopes and aspirations and an aspirational 1.4 billion people who have started consuming a lot of stuff, including energy products. And on the other hand, we are also at the cusp of a transformation where the world is worried about climate. So how do you think India is considered a fast growing emerging economy? How does India walk that fine line between, you know, uh, growing the economy and, you know, meeting the aspirations of the people and also, you know, meeting the aspirations of climate change activists? I think no Indian government can afford not to meet the aspirations of the people. So the aspirations of the people are going to be there and that is a good driving point for the growth and development of the economy. Uh, we can provide clean energy to, to all. And what are the options? One of the options is, of course, we have renewable solar, wind, sure which we have substantial resources are available. It would require a gradual phasing out of coal and we can do that in a way that really has a least harmful effect on coal producing states and, and people depend on the coal economy. And also we should really concentrate on doing battery technology. Yeah. Now we have got lithium. It may not really look very complicated uh, but uh, it is still a very expensive uh, proposition. Research is going on in some areas in India where people are developing alternative tech. But not only India, all over the world. So I think eventually we will have clean and cheap battery available, effective. So converting all your vehicles to electric vehicles or a little bit of uh, hydrogen for long-term trucking, uh, long-distance trucking. I think these are possible. And so there is not really impossible to imagine an economy which produces a lot of electricity, meets everybody's need for electricity, including electricity for charging your vehicles, and produces enough hydrogen and other things to really meet all the hard, difficult to you know, abate sectors also where you can really provide uh, alternatives which is clean and green. Uh, Dr. Parekh, regarding governments, flip-flops have kept a happen on the past related to policies. As you've rightly put, several investors across nations have pointed out that there should be policy stability. You just came out with your report on um, gas fare prices for gas. During your interactions with government officials, uh, how have you found them? Did you find them open? Did you find them accepting uh, changes uh, which is happening? Uh, a sort of openness which, which people desire in now governments today since ease of doing business is has considered a very important aspect. If you say government officers, bureaucracy Sir. seems to be the younger guys, the new generation is really very market-oriented, free. They would be happy with a competitive market and so on. So I, I don't see there is that kind of a thing, you know. There is no old, cool guys who are steeped into their, uh, their belief. But they are very pragmatic. 
So I don't see that is any any issue. Now you could say, what about politicians? Sure. Now politicians have a, have a different mandate. They have to take care of all the constituents, and particularly the voters. And I think, by and large, an understanding is there that you know retroactive policies and other things are not are hurting the country in a long sense. So as far as I think, my belief is that government once is now really trying to attract investments in the country. It has recognized that policy stability is critical, and that it it will follow that kind of a thing. Post this Russia-Ukraine conflict, um, the prices of gas have uh, have uh, uh, seen record levels. On an average, in last calendar year 2022, the prices averaged at around 32 dollars per mm BTU, uh, as per the IEA, uh, and this has also impacted the sourcing of LNG. So, what, according to you, can the government do to ensure that stable supplies at affordable prices are delivered? Because you know this is the crux, and even the government has at several platforms. Uh, express this inability about controlling prices and why we put this question to you some months back i i spoke with the former petroleum secretary mr tarun kapoor and mr kapoor was of the opinion that maybe consuming countries now need to form a caucus and which which can be used to exert pressure so how do you see this whole market dynamics and and do you see a way out or an well, a solution 30 years ago at the indira gandhi institute Sir. one of my young student research assistant said sir why don't you formulate opic organization of petroleum importing countries it is that kind of an idea but i think uh, this is not a question of forming a, a group against the other you know there are many producers of gas and their cost of producing gas varies field to field you could say so my feeling is that the price that you see is it's really a demand and supply thing now if you say that there are people who can buy gas at 20 dollars an mm btu and they find that it's worthwhile for them to do that because that their products sell it at even a higher cost then i think setting up an opic can help moderate certain fluctuations in the prices but by and large i think the the market demand and the the pressure of demand and supply will dominate the pricing sir one last question you have seen uh, closely seen public policy being formulated being implemented over the last 5 decades you have seen the license raj how india came out of the license raj then further relaxations and then further liberalization and this is with respect to the energy sector in since the last 5 years is there any change which you think needs to be pointed out number 1 Number two, as we have changed and become more climate conscious, more conscious towards the aspirations of our people, which is a right thing. But uh, the policies that are being made or had have been made for those, uh, do you agree with them? And if not, what do you think should be done? I think uh, you have to recognize how the policies have evolved over this. We started in nineteen fifty at the time of independence, forty seven at that time. if you had looked back on the world you would have seen that during the war and intervening period many countries had used price control and rationing and soviet union with uh, central planning had become from 
October 1917 to 47 in 30 years, they have become a major global power. It was a consensus among leading economists in the world at that stage that yes, a country should should start with a planning mixed economics and that a 3% growth rate up to 2020 would be a very high aspirational growth rate. So I don't think that what we started out with central planning but also having a lot of freedom to private sector and others was uh, was something that any economist, barring a few here and there, were objected mm-hmm. to. We also felt that at a large country at that time, you know, India cannot really go in an export-oriented thing because the growth of imports that took place in the 50s was not anticipated, the post-World War uh, boom that took place in the growth. So we felt that also if you at that time, if you really try to push too much of exports, then the price would come down, terms of trade would go down, and it would be counterproductive. So India also had this, to control certain license, Raj was introduced. But of course, like any Sarkari policies, it evolves or degenerates or gets corrupted into something that was really strangulating the economy. Some of us, my colleague and myself, were in the, almost in the, in the late 60s or mid-60s, we were arguing that there is a time to dismantle this these things and that uh, license charge instead of giving it let's have auctions of the foreign exchange rather than than do this uh, free market was was really is the di- direction in which we should move mrs gandhi actually you know wanted to move to a free market says in i think it was 65 or 6 6 that they devalued the indian rupee significantly mm-hmm from 5 rupees to 7.5 rupees to a dollar. And she had an understanding with World Bank and IMF that they would help India bridge this, the, the foreign exchange needs for the next two years. Because when you immediately devalue, cost becomes high, but you are not able to, uh, to export immediately because the export companies would take some time to get and gear to this. So you needed some transient thing. But uh, Lyndon Johnson didn't like Mrs. Gandhi, and so he pressurized World Bank and IMF not to uh, help India. And we had severe, one of the most, uh, 65, 66, was once in 200 years kind of a drought. Drought. And we had to, we were looking from ship to mouth was, was the situation. So it slowed down the movement towards liberalization. It was gradual. Now, in mid-60s, we had pointed out that, look, South Korea, with one-tenth the population of India, is exporting more than India is exporting. So the the world situation has changed, and the export orientation would be the right thing to do at that stage. But if you look at the Indian policy, it has always been gradually moving towards liberalizing. Now what is happening is sure. that the deglobalization, as some sure. people say, sure. is beginning to happen because you know global markets have been dominated by few very large companies which are really cornering all the gains from globalization. No, true, the consumers are benefiting from it around the world from this, 
but there has been a problem and one is concerned about growth of employment and self-reliance or atmanirbharata and so the government is gradually moving towards a kind of a industrial policy kind of a thing but the idea is not really to have license and other things not to have too many tariffs and other things but really encourage development through this pmi and other schemes that the government is following so my guess is despite our various governments have changed by and large the thrust and the direction of the policies have remained the same so i think uh, we are moving in the right direction sure. though this little bit of uh, emphasis change on domestic production uh, one hopes that it doesn't get translated into high tariffs for imports because critical thing is that you know free imports are very important for keeping your domestic industry competitive and efficient if you look at how korea did korea had controls of of pricing and so on in the early 50s and 60s but at the same time its its domestic producers who were protected at the same time they had to compete with the international market so that there was always that pressure to remain competitive competitive and efficient so i think that is the kind of policy direction we should go thank you dr parekh for your articulate and incisive comments and thank you for speaking with the business line right.